Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. So it's become a tradition um, at the BKI to use the gospel story of Jesus' baptism as a way to introduce visitors to our bioregion, theology, and social context. To do this, we play at transposing the history, culture, and landscape of the Jesus story onto that of Ventura River watershed. And the purpose of this exercise is to become more attentive to and literate in the deep social history and ecology of the word in its context and that of our place. Although we're in lectionary year C, right now, which focuses on Luke's gospel, we'll work this morning from Mark's baptism story, because it is briefer and we only have 25 minutes. So if you have a Bible, we invite you to turn to Mark 1 and follow along. But rest assured, oh yes, the Bible on those devices, or an actual Bible. Rest assured, the next two morning Bible studies we will work from Luke. Chad has developed this experimental BKI reading further over the last year, and an excerpt of his study was recently published in this volume, which our friend Steve Heinrichs curated. Many of you have already been using this groundbreaking collection of biblical experiments in decolonization, and we recommend it to you highly, and it is available at the BCM book table. In this morning's unsettling exercise, we recontextualize the baptism story into Shumash territory in the mid-19th century. We want to make it very clear that this is not an attempt to Christianize local indigenous traditions, but rather to try out how we might indigenize this sacred story in our place. After all, in coming here to the Ventura River watershed, you are stepping into a history that you began to get introduced to last night. It's a peopled place, a story of inhibition that, excuse me, inhabitation that far predates European maps or official narratives. In our reimagination of Mark's text, we work with analogies that try to find parallels between ancient scripture in its historical context and the context of this bioregion roughly 175 years ago. For starters, we deploy the Spanish Jesus to acknowledge the colonial substrate of our historical and geopolitical context here in Southern California. The Chumash are the first peoples here, and as you heard last night, for millennia were a thriving and sustainable hunter-gatherer seafaring culture. But successive and brutal waves of Spanish colonization from 769 to 1820, and then Mexican from 1820 to 1848, and then American from 
1848 to the present, colonization changed all of that. Yet today, the small Chumash population is engaged in the long, slow struggle to rebuild their language, ceremonies, identity, and roles as traditional stewards of this land. So the question we asked in this reimagination is, what might good news have sounded like amidst one of the worst periods of Chumash dispossession? The temporal setting for this recontextualization is a crucial point in the mid-19th century process of Euro-American colonization here in SoCal. On the eve of the U.S. takeover of California in 1848 as part of the spoils of the Mexican-American War at the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the situation of the Chumash was dire. Settlers had driven most Chumash from their traditional villages and hunting grounds, and those who had been taken into, by force or by necessity, the missions had largely been abandoned after Mexican secularization of that system in 1833. Protected neither by treaties nor reservations, disease, dispossession, and slavery had taken a huge toll on Chumash bands though things would get much, much worse under American rule. So it was not terribly unlike the systematic Roman domination of Galilean peasants in the first century. Mark's gospel begins with a foretelling of the renewal of the wilderness prophetic tradition as an analogy to how the Judaic scriptures held the sacred stories of their people. Here we use Shumash cave painting. And there are many surviving pictograph sites throughout our terrain here in Ventura, believed to have been created by shamanic leaders. These sites are, of course, sacred to the Shumash, though their meanings have in many cases been lost due to settler destruction of and disinterest in these sacred traditions. Isaiah talks about a revived way for his people to renewal. We use the analogy of the Rainbow Bridge. In this traditional Chumash creation migration story, Hutash, Matt, Matt uh, taught us that word last night, Hutash meaning Earth Mother, grew the people from magic seeds that she planted out on Limu, which is Santa Cruz Island. But when it got too crowded, Hutash created a tall spanning bridge from a wishtoyo, which is rainbow, for the people to walk across to the mainland. They migrated over this bridge to the Ventura and Santa Barbara areas. But some of the people fell off into the ocean and became dolphins, whom the Chumash honor as relatives. This mythic story of a new start is analogous to Mark's notion of repentance, metanoia, meaning to change historic directions, to turn things around and head in a new way. This lay at the heart of John the Baptist's message, which was then taken up by Jesus when John was arrested, tortured, detained, and executed. The journey motif also resonates with Mark's invocation of the Exodus journey as the way of discipleship. 
We have a John figure coming down from the local mountains because much of this watershed is mountainous and still largely uninhabited. Our valley is framed, you will have seen them, by the Santa Inez and the Topa Topa Ranges, a Spanish and Chumash word name, respectively. Iwi Hinmu, which is Mount Pinos, at 8,847 feet, is the highest point in Ventura County. Considered by the Chumash to be the center of the world, where everything is in balance. Its summit lies at the heart of their traditional territory. A side note, but exciting for us, and Julie mentioned it last night, just 10 days ago, we had snow on all of our local mountains, which is a very rare occurrence. In this reimagination, Ched has chosen Fernando Librado, Kitsa Powet, uh, born 1839, uh, died 1915, uh, Chet has chosen him as the John the Baptist figure, in part just because we know a great deal about him relative to most other 19th century Chumash. He is a fascinating personality who was a major cultural informant to ethnographic John Harrington in 1912. Kitsipawit's parents were brought from Santa Cruz Island as children to Mission San Buenaventura, they married in 1830 and had several children, though only Fernando lived to adulthood. Kitsipawit was raised at the mission, but lived much of his later life on ranches to the north. He spoke both English and Spanish and knew how to read and write, and thus later he, his adopted name, Librado, which means the book lover. Though not a traditional shaman as far as we know, as far as is recorded. Kitsapawit was well-versed in Shumash ritual, voyaging, and song. He witnessed the disintegration of the former mission communities and coming of the Yankees, writes John Johnson, the foremost contemporary anthropologist studying Shumash history and culture. In response, Kitsapawit became intimately acquainted with many former neophytes from five principal missions, learning many of their deep traditions of his people. And in this sense, therefore, he helped preserve the old ways. Like most Chumash during this period of colonial consolidation and domination, Kitsapawit survived on the margins of society. He often lived in a cave, even while working at local ranches, and was known to have spent considerable time in the backcountry of Ventura and Santa Barbara counties, gathering food and plant medicine. So we might legitimately consider him a traditionalist and even a colonial resistor. Though we rarely read about them in our history books, native renewal movements often arose in response to 19th century colonialism and were frequently led by indigenous prophets. The ghost dance in the 1890s was perhaps the most famous example. Uh, we've imagined such a movement among the Chumash, though in fact there were only a few native revolts in Southern California during the first 75 years of European colonization, and none was particularly dramatically successful. Uh, 
But there are two uprisings of note. In 1785, a Tongva female shaman named Toi Purina seated insurgency around the Los Angeles area. A plot to unite bands into a revolt was discovered by the Spanish Padres, and Toi Purina was exiled to Monterey. Then in 1824, the Chumash revolt at Santa Barbara was the largest, the state's largest on record. Nevertheless, most Chumash in the Central Coast region survived through assimilation. Taking our cue from Mark's prologue, however, we imagine Kitsapowit as a John the Baptist type leader sparking a movement of Chumash renewal and resistance. We're intentionally drawing an analogy here between first century Jews, the principal neo-indigenous population of Palestine 2,000 years ago under Roman occupation, and 19th century Chumash under Mexican-American occupation. We imagine Kitsapawit sparks a movement within, with a water ritual in Matilaha Creek. Now this is a Chumash name of uncertain meaning. Many tributaries feed this 17-mile perennial creek, which joins with the North Fork Matilaha Creek to form the mighty Ventura River, which includes several sacred hot springs. Just ask Charlita. She can take you there. Because Matilaha is tucked away up in rugged mountain canyons, it would have been an ideal place for a native resistance movement. Local lore claims that the notorious Mexican social bandit Joaquin Murrieta hid out there, and today there is a path named after him, the Murrieta Trail. And if you don't know that story, tap us later. Los Angeles would have been the closest major pueblo, but the growing city of San Francisco swelled from the gold rush, which displaced thousands of native communities in the Sierra foothills, would more accurately be the equivalent of Jerusalem in Mark's narrative, the political and socioeconomic capital of Judea. By the 1840s, the closest Shumash villages of Matilaha and Ojai had been depopulated. Refugees from there and from San Buenaventura Mission ended up building traditional apps or brush huts near the mouth of the Ojai Valley near Cañada Larga, close to a sacred sycamore tree at the site of a mission, Asistencia, an outlying chapel not far from the Ventura River. And this is where Shumash lived into the American period. While this would be a lovely site for our imagined baptisms, especially because we at BCM are trying to help caretake the Assistencia Memorial site, it would have been much too visible and vulnerable to the colonizers. Just a note here, you can learn more about the Assistencia from Robert Valiente Neighbors' exhibit in Hanson Hall. So as you learned last night, and we uh, experienced again this morning, water was and is traditionally used by Shumash healers for purification ceremonies, not so much smudging as in other tribes. It is often sprinkled with native Artemisia bundles. That's what Julie used last night. Acorns and chia seeds from sage and small game were staples of the Shumash diet. 
Kitsipawit seems to have practiced some of the old ways. American settler John Begg recollected that, quote, his cave was a little distance from the school. That was where he kept his blankets and where he slept. He used to travel all up through the hills here to get herbs for his medicine. Kitsipawit was recorded singing an old song from the Santa Cruz Island Chumash in 1913. It was not uncommon for 19th century native prophets to foretell the coming of powerful medicine that would disrupt the colonial status quo. And again, the ghost dance movement is a prime example. So again, just checking in here, you're following along the attempt to have Mark's text and then the reimagined text that's making some sense. It's an experimental thing we're doing here. We chose Wima, Santa Rosa Island, pictured here is Skunk Point, as the place Jesus came from, because as an offshore island, it was out of the way and relatively ignored by the colonizers, just like Nazareth was in ancient Palestine. So Jesus, in paddling over to the mainland, was following an old migration pattern of his peoples, the Rainbow Bridge. As noted, Kitsapowit's parents were from the islands. Archaeologists have found the oldest human remains in North America there, predating the Aleutia land bridge by several thousand years. Tomols, traditional plank canoes, again, that uh, Julie mentioned last night, played an important role in Chumash culture and in the 1824 revolt at Santa Barbara. Today, the modern Chumash Maritime Society has resumed paddling to Lemieux, Santa Cruz Island, to perform ceremony, which is an important strategy of cultural renewal. Mark tells us that while everyone else was baptized in the river, Jesus was immersed into the Jordan, a difference of great narrative and theological and bioregional significance in the gospel. We've studied this before at the BKI. In this reimagining, therefore, we're similarly immersing Jesus in Shumash culture, history, and place. Because, as we've said here so often over the years, paraphrasing Senegalese environmental pioneer Baba Diom, in order to liberate a place, we must love it, which requires us to know it, which demands that we learn it. This is wisdom that Christian missionaries coming to Shumash territory would have done well to heed. But more on that in tomorrow's study. And what is more bioregionally appropriate, more bioregionally appropriate bird for the gospel dove than the California condor? Any of you folks seen a California condor? How many of you? Yeah. A carrion eater who, during the Pleistine, Pleistine, roamed all over the continent. It is now native only to Southern California. With a wingspan of almost 10 feet, the condor is the largest bird in North America, but has been balanced on the brink of extinction for decades. These magnificent birds still survive deep in the Topa Topa ranges and other remote places today, 
thanks to a successful long-term bred in captivity rescue and rehabilitation program. The condor was sacred to many California tribes, sometimes associated with the land of the dead. In our imagination, however, its spirit presence through the voice bestows upon Jesus power over death. Native folks might say that Jesus here had a vision of his spirit animal, which would help him clarify his vision and his vocation. So as Jesus hears creator's voice of affirmation and animation in true indigenous fashion, the next step for him is deeper into a vision quest into the wilderness. Humcock Point Conception is the westernmost point of Southern California Bight. The geological divide from points north that shelters the Mediterranean climate of the region. It was understand, understood by the Shumash as the holiest of places. The western gate where the souls of the dead jumped off to begin their celestial journey to the heavenly paradise of Simalaska. In 1978, the area was occupied by Shumash and other indigenous peoples in a successful attempt to save it from development by a liquefied natural gas company. Resisting temptations, indeed. So here we're correlating the native vision quest tradition to Jesus' wilderness temptations, named in the longer gospel version of Matthew and Luke as economic exploitation, imperial domination, and self-delusion. Four or five years ago, we did a whole BKI just on the temptation narrative. This is underlined by the fact that here, Jesus is accompanied and protected by animals in the wild. So I first began experimenting with this vision quest reading of the gospel temptations narrative during um, that activist moment in 1992 around the Columbus Quincentenary, it was a crucial moment for the revitalization of indigenous resistance and renewal movements all over the world. At that point, I was just playing with the notion of Jesus being on an inward, outward journey to discover the roots of the historic crisis of his people. A decade later, on a pilgrimage in Victoria with Australian Aboriginal leaders, we recognized similar resonance with their traditions of dreaming. But don't take our word for it. Brooke and Safina last year were part of a whole symposium on the topic of the dreaming and spirit-filled Christianity at the grassroots tree gathering. And in the U.S., one of the most important voices is Stephen Charleston, and we highly recommend his recent book, The Four Vision Quests of Jesus, which makes a beautiful and compelling case for this native tradition as a revealing hermeneutic for the gospel story. Steve is a Choctaw elder and Episcopal bishop, now retired, and a friend and mentor of Bob Tubal's. We invited him um, to be with us at this institute, but his family commitments prevented him from being able to be here. Charleston writes about the temptation story. Jesus, as a son of the peoples, walks behind the spirit into the wilderness not as a single mystic going out for a private audience with God, 
but as the representative of the whole nation. In the Native Vision Quest, he goes on to say, the focus is on what the individual must do to be part of the relational matrix of community. Therefore, it is not surprising that Jesus' first vision comes from the oldest members of this community, the stones. In the Native Vision Quest, the focus is on what the individual must do for the community. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful book, uh, Charleston's book, which some of us from Farm Church have been studying, and we commend it to you. Time and time again, Charleston points out fascinating parallels between indigenous and biblical symbolism, spiritual culture, and relationship to the land. So this book, uh, if you read your email, was on our recommended reading list um, for the Institute, and if you didn't get to it, we really encourage you to spend some time with it as follow-up, as a study group or personal devotion, especially if you're interested in the kind of analogical work that we've done this morning between gospel and native traditions. This is mindful of a practice of what we call the discipline of replacement, recentering our faith traditions in the place and its history that we inhabit finding the River Jordan in our own midst, because all God's water and lands are holy. Ched wrote this in his Who Will Roll Away the Stone book, which is also at the resource table, if you're interested. He wrote this a quarter century ago. The task of replace theology is to reclaim symbols of redemption, which are indigenous to the bioregion in which the church dwells, to remember the stories of the peoples of the land and to sing anew its old songs. These can then be woven together with the symbols, stories, and songs of biblical radicalism. This will necessarily be a local, contextual, and personal exercise. So to conclude, how might you narrate Mark's prologue in terms of your own bioregion? Which places in the watershed might be analogous to Mark's wilderness or to the Jordan River? What historical dynamics of power and social crisis in your context might resemble Mark's geopolitical specificity? specificity in which indigenous inhabitants are suffering under foreign domination and where they're drawn to the margins to encounter a wilderness prophet. Who in your local history might resemble John the Baptist? This exercise builds literacy not only in the gospel narrative and its literary dynamics and incidents but also in our own bioregions, including topography, spiritual and storied traditions, political history, and social matrices. You'll find that both ancient text and your social and ecological context spring to life through such analogical imagination. Doing this kind of reflection can help us decolonize scripture, 
its interpretation and ourselves in order that we Christians can learn what restorative solidarity with indigenous struggles for justice look like in our own places. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>